when you talk about things like empathy specifically or any of those, you know, that that compassion, that that peace, I think sometimes we get overly focused on the fact that those things can't be trained, but those affective skills, those interpersonal skills can be trained like anything else. You're listening to the Seton Hall Undergraduate Leaders Podcast, the only leadership podcast run by undergraduate students dedicated to helping undergraduate students lead in diverse fields. From people in diplomacy to entertainment, from CEOs to student leaders, we feature people from all walks of life. It's all part of the mission. Here at the Vecina Leadership Institute, we make leaders better. Hello and welcome to the Seton Hall Undergraduate Leaders Podcast. My name is Kaida Jesus and today I'll be your host. Today I'm talking to Dr. Lauren Snowden, Director of Clinical Education at Seton Hall University. She received her bachelor's and master's in science at Ithaca College and then received her DPT at the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey. She also has a doctorate in interdisciplinary leadership from Creighton University. Afterwards, she became a clinical manager at a top rehabilitation facility, also holding roles as site coordinator of clinical education and neurologic residency program director at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. Some of her career highlights include being awarded the Rutgers School of Health-Related Professions Distinguished Service Award in 2016 and the Kathy Dotzer Kohlenstein Clinical Educators Award in 2011. Dr. Snowden, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So my first question, I am not personally in science, but usually when I see all my friends talk about their science majors, they're just going through it with a bunch of hard, difficult work. How can you tell if a student is struggling because the course material is just simply hard or because they're not meant for it? And can anyone get into STEM? Mm, interesting. So the sciences are hard. I think some people, you think you have a distinct interest in it, and then you go in and either it aligns with your interest or it ends up being different than you thought. You know, I teach at the graduate level. So a lot of our students come straight through from the undergrad program. So they've gotten familiarized with the sciences and maybe through some of those harder sciences that are that maybe don't feel as related to the profession like chemistry or bio. So by the time they get to me, most of the time students have either graduated from a different program or come through Seton Hall and, and think they have a little bit of the science interest. But transition to graduate school is hard. So we work really hard really early to ensure the students know that there's resources available and really to try and connect them to the non-scientific side of the profession, which I think there's a lot in physical therapy of we go in to help people and say, if you get the science, you'll get the, the joy and the art of making somebody better and kind of introduce that sooner and earlier to support them through it. For those of us that are not familiar with like the connection to the STEM side of the job to the non-STEM side of the job, can you talk about that just a little bit more? So there are, you know, in our school, particularly, what I think is really unique, we have a lot of things that, again, just bring that human piece to it. So there is testing and there is memory through anatomy and there are those elements. But we have a lot of resources that connect people to the, the person-centered component of it, which is what you end up doing. So we have a really extensive simulation center where we'll start with mannequins and then we have some physical people come in, some actors who act like patients, which is really fun to watch. And the students get to see people who are not their peers uh, role play through all the scenarios they might see. We also have a lot of partners in the area that we get to meet. We do videos with them and teleconferencing and and bring in just that humanistic side of their story so that they can understand what they'll be doing later, which in some ways I think helps the harder parts of the hard science. I'm really curious about the whole point that you brought up with like 
the actors coming in. Is oh. that like weird? How was that like? Oh, it's amazing. It's so fun to watch. And you can come. I can bring you in on video sometime to watch. It's really neat. So the these actors are trained and they are directors. They are trained to portray any patient case we want. So the benefit of that is we know all the things we've seen as clinicians and so, as someone who's worked at a hospital like this. We've seen these kind of crazy things and what they might come into. And I think in a career like physical therapy or any of these rehab professions, the unexpected is more of the normal. So you go in with a plan and every day there's something new and different because people are different. So the actors, we train them to kind of maybe catch the students off guard a little bit. So they're in a safe space to learn what would they do in that scenario when they are really in front of a patient. So we teach them what to say and what facial expressions to use and maybe to give a little pushback so that the students feel that they can grow in those more professional and affect behaviors. So that would help them to apply all the clinical things they've learned. A lot of fun. So is it you that's doing the directing or is it like they go to some sort of acting school and then they get like... The actors are true actors. They, mm-hmm. they are in commercials, they are in movies, they are in all other things. But part of their role is they act as something called a standardized patient. And that's what they're trained to do. That's their acting role. So we just tell them what to say, but they are true actors that you you know see in any other media. That's so fascinating. Yeah, it's neat. I wanted to go back to the point about just science and getting into like STEM majors and getting into STEM as a career. So a lot of people get into it, quote unquote, because they want financial stability. They, they want the money that comes with mm-hmm. a STEM career. Mm-hmm. Is that enough to make it in any sort of like STEM field or do you think you need the passion? I definitely think you need the passion. I think you need the passion more than more than the rest. You know, in terms of stability, healthcare is a great field. We are, I think our society has changed so much. And it's saying, you know, when I look ahead and I put all this, you know, time, money, energy into into my college training, I want something that there is a give back. So certainly it is a stable field. There are jobs available. And I know that's encouraging. But if you don't have that passion to really deal with the change. You know, we've seen that more than ever in the pandemic, but at all times it's, you know, I've been a PT for over 20 years and every patient is different. Every, you know, diagnosis is different. Every family member is different. So you really need to be able to be adaptable and flexible in your thinking. And you need to love what you do because it makes those hard times manageable. And you need to become accustomed to the fact that little things are big things. So that a patient might not, you know, I work in with neurologic patients, really disabled patients. And for them, you know, it might not be that they come to me in a wheelchair and they walk out, but it might be that they learn to, you know, use their head to drive their wheelchair and they could do that because I help them to do that. And that I think is the most motivating factor and is really the go-to of what makes people successful in a healthcare career. So what would you say to people that don't know if a career in STEM is right for them? I think any opportunities you have that you can get exposure are great. So certainly volunteering and looking at different settings is helpful. Um, Again, thankfully, there's a lot of things out in our world now that you can research on your own. You can look up the different types of jobs. You can look up videos about how people are doing things. Not that we want really well-known people to be injured, but when there are sports figures injured or other people in society injured and seeing their stories and trying to learn from them, I think that's really helpful as well to get to know what the ins and outs of it are. But I think doing your own research so that you know, I think rehab professions are interesting and that there's a ton of them. So I'm a PT who works in a hospital, but there are PTs who work in schools. There are ones who work with sports teams. There are all those things. So I think it's research in any avenue you might be able to go to and seeing what you're really drawn to and what what makes it stand out. What trait do you think you need most in this field to succeed? Mm, That's a great question. I would say... I'm torn between two, and I think 
I think flexibility and adaptability, that piece is probably up there and not the typical that, you know, have a patient come at nine and then they have to be there at 915. We're talking being able to evolve in your thinking and know that science changes. And as we change over time, we want to evolve with that. When I look at what I do now, it's very different than what I did when I started practicing. And that's a good thing. I don't want it to be that everything's what I used to do and I did such a great job. Then I want to know that I've learned from what I've done and that I've been able to adjust to the times, to the changing evidence we have, to the people around me, to my mentors, and that I've been able to give some of that back. So I would say being flexible and adaptable is incredibly important. And I think from the perspective of, you know, all kinds of behaviors, compassion seems like a straightforward answer, but it is it is so critical to really be able to have that sort of empathetic side that you you don't have to, and I hope no one has to deal with some of the things patients deal with, but that you can really put yourself in their shoes and be empathetic and then be able to use what you've learned um, to kind of drive what you're doing with other patients. Right. I, I, you brought up the point about empathy, and most people do have empathy and the ability to empathize with other people. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you... This is this is going to be a strange question, but like, how do you like have that empathy to like for for every patient? Like, mm. how do you like that that empathy muscle? Like, does it like ever go out? Or? That is such a great question. I um, this has been a real focus for me. So it's funny when I got my graduate degree, got this degree in interdisciplinary leadership, and we could have done our dissertation on anything. And some people, you know, I worked with a range of people from all professions. It wasn't just healthcare workers. There was you know, people in HR and people in education and principals and all these other roles. And so we could have done our dissertation on anything. And um, I think people expected me to do mine maybe on something more science-based. And I did mine on how communication-type behaviors help you to thrive in teamwork. Um, So that was actually my dissertation topic. And it's funny, when you talk about things like empathy specifically or any of those, you know, that that compassion, that, that piece... I think sometimes we get overly focused on the fact that those things can't be trained, but those affective skills, those interpersonal skills can be trained like anything else. So it's funny you said, I think you said, can that go out? Can you flex that muscle? Like from PTs, we say, oh, if I lift a weight, I can get stronger. Something like empathy can get stronger as well. So we really integrate training of that for our students and all across my career. When I look at what I think I was most successful with in healthcare. It was teaching people how to use those skills and practice those skills just like any other physical skill you do. So you mentioned interdisciplinary leadership. That word gets thrown around, especially the Cena Leadership Institute, and you also did education in it. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about why that's so important for people that aren't really used to what that means? Yes. I think we, and I've learned so much in my life, in my career, I'm very fortunate in in what I have taken, but... um. The diversity we have in people and in professions, it's just such an untapped resource. So I think it's really valuable to draw upon other skills and whatever they are. So for me, when I'm in a in a graduate program and learning from people who, you know, there's some similarities. Someone in the program who again is a principal, they are working with students and they are working with colleagues and they are having to give direction and solve difficult problems. All those things, they translate across any profession, but it was great to hear those different perspectives and then think, how does that apply to my field? 
How can it be generalized? And then what's different for me? So again, what is different in healthcare leaders? And think about that. Scope is huge, but working in a team, we can we can only do so much within within our own um, profession. So to be able to draw upon those strengths of people in other professions to learn how they would manage again anything a clinical case a complex problem a staff member has an issue a new change in science any of those we can only make ourselves stronger by building on the strengths of others and mm-hmm. i think in healthcare particularly that teamwork is so critical and there's that emphasis on teamwork has continued to grow there's a humility that comes with that to say i don't know everything and i think people who are the strongest leaders understand and respect that that I don't have all the answers. I'm glad I don't have all the answers. I'm happy to have other people to dialogue with. And I'm happy to then share in return if there is something that maybe is more, you know, of my expertise or my experience. Right. So on any team, disagreements happen. But this is a very high stakes place to have a disagreement mm. because, like, you know, it's it's healthcare. You're dealing with people's lives. How do you manage these disagreements when there's such high stakes involved? Mm-hmm. When we work in teams in healthcare, and again, there's all different ways you do it. So based on where you work, you might have a small team of just you and one other person and other people that you call on. In hospital settings, which is more of my primary setting, you are more in the trenches in the moment. And certainly the um, the expediency of things can change based on where you work. So if you were in an ICU, your um, your timeliness of decisions has to be very quick. So I think There's the idea of being a team, which is a really established group of people who know and work with each other, and they might know your whole personal story. And then sort of this other idea of teaming, where it's that I can fluidly move in and out of a team of of anyone and have certain skills that automatically make me adapt. And I think that's where I said adaptability is a strength, because you need to be able to walk in and quickly say, Hi, I'm Lauren. We're working with Mr. Smith today. He has a blood pressure issue. What do you know about his case and what can we do together and move? And that process of teaming happens very, very quickly, but is something that that you can use in any scenario. So I think when we're working in those situations, it's not about training to a specific thing you'll see because you won't be able to know all those things. It's about training to how you would respond, how to professionally talk to people, how to maneuver in case there is something unexpected, and certainly if there's a conflict, and then how to move ahead in, in what's in the best interest of the patient. So you mentioned this concept about teaming, which is moving in and out of teams and then just like getting to work on them basically right away. Mm-hmm. How do you maintain, I guess, a sort of team chemistry with, any, with someone that you've just kind of dropped in like, hey, we're working together now. How do you, how do you mm-hmm. get that together? That's a great question. We start this with our students really early too, and I did this with my employees all the time when I was in a management role, is your ability to reflect upon yourself, I think, helps you be a great teammate in any scenario, whether it's your longstanding team or your team that you are fluidly moving in and out of. It is what do I bring and what don't I bring, and then being able to share that in the moment. So it might be that, as you said, you're moving into a team. I know what one of my strengths is. I know I'm extremely organized personally. So if I'm going into a new scenario, I might say we're coming into it to say we're going to meet with this family. I've put together an outline that might help us. Does anyone want to look at it? Give me your input. And who wants to take the lead? Or say I want to take the lead. But going through those steps, I think of knowing what your strengths are and then being able to step back if someone else has a contribution. I think that's really valuable. So self-reflection as a leader, as a student leader, as an employee, as a manager, I think those pieces are really important 
because we need to know um, what we bring to every situation. And then that will allow us to know what other people bring as well. You've talked a lot about the rapid decision making that you have to make in the healthcare industry. I have quite a few questions about that. Sure. So my first one is, do you ever doubt the decisions that you make when you're kind of in the moment? And well, do you even have time to doubt it? And how do you reassure yourself in situations like this? Depending on the acuity of the situation, yes and no. So and my primary focus was a rehab hospital where patients were typically stable and able to participate, but I've worked in in many settings and certainly our students go into many settings that I need to know um, all the variables that are encountered in terms of rapid decision making. So my primary role now is to place students in clinics where I'm not on site with them. So they are entering teams and entering these scenarios and that's why they really need to be adept in these skills themselves because we are not there with them. But I need to really consult with them on how they would address those things and, and how quickly they need to do it. So for a safety issue, you need to be able to do it immediately. And in the moment, you just need to understand that everything is in the interest of patient safety. And then when that piece is handled, you can take a step back and determine what went well, what would you do differently, and how to move forward. So again, there is a expediency to something like that um, in certain situations. Most of the time, thankfully, as a physical therapist, you are not in scenarios where you are, everything is as dire as maybe a surgeon or, you know, someone in, in a true that, that immediate moment or, you know, an EMT at the side of something like that. But in the end, um, when we are in those situations, it's always going back and really reconvening on what you might have done differently to say, oh, I wish I'd spoken to the nurse first, or I spoke to the nurse last night and I didn't reconfirm that this was the same situation. Whatever would have made the scenario and really, really better for the patient is what, as a healthcare provider, you need to do. How do you get better at making these quick decisions? I Writing things down a lot is good. I think sometimes students leave school and say, I'm done writing things down. I've, I've done all my homework and I've taken my tests. I think that's a, it's a really important skill throughout your life. So kind of journaling at the end of the day about things like that. You know, my students, again, they're required to do it when they're out. So I automatically, um, people are sort of asked to provide feedback about themselves so that they can determine how they would have handled something. But overall, I think that's an important life skill. Talking to colleagues is really great. That's where I think mentors and coaches are so critical in life throughout your career is who do you go to and say, can I talk through a scenario that I went through and I feel like I could have done better or differently, or I feel like I did great. And I, I would love your confirmation or validation of that. So I think as we look at these kind of rising healthcare leaders is having people know that those mentor coach relationships are something that to establish early in your career and look out for. They're so beneficial to really helping you grow and helping you know how to handle all the novel situations that occur in our field. So you mentioned writing things down. What's your preferred way to just write things down? Like, is it a journal? Is it like a phone? And why? You know, I'm, I'm a pen and paper person. I'm also older than most of the practicing clinicians, right? I tend to write things down, just little notes to myself. You know, and even I have a, a planner that I use in the day, which is a paper planner. And I'll write like, it'll be like success of the day to like celebrate your successes. I think that's a really important thing that has helped me to feel that I'm acknowledging something, even if it's small. And, or again, a goal for the day or a goal for the week or whatever I want to do. I tend to do it on paper, but that's me. I recognize, you know, sometimes I'll write little notes in my phone 
which are that quick reminder I can look to throughout the day. Not that we're treating with phones in our pockets, but um, if I want to refer back to it, that might be easier. But whatever I feel can get the thought down. I think that's really important. It seems that part of it, it's not just about getting organized. It's also about just recording your life, like documenting it. Is that is that part of it? Yeah, it's interesting. I was reading something recently. I was talking about stories, like how, how we live our life through stories. And, you know, I look back on my career and I can tell stories about anything, about my patients, about my staff. I People joke with me, I have a really good memory. So they can bring up someone and I can be out now and I can see someone in the clinic and say, hey, you're a student at Kessler. Weren't you back in like 2005? And didn't you work with this? And they'll look at me like, oh my goodness, why do you remember that? But I think that has helped me to connect with people throughout my life. So I think everybody has a story and kind of living through those stories is valuable. So I feel like I've kind of chronicled my life and my career a little bit in stories. Um, And I don't remember all the details over time, but I will remember you know, there was a patient who had a really difficult family member. And what did I learn from that about talking to families? Or there was an employee who really struggled when they had patients who were not recovering. And how did I talk to them? And I think that helped me to just adapt these kind of strategies that we've been talking about of being a good communicator and being a good professional outside of all the clinical things um, that I hopefully did well. So when you do your writing, do you like go super in depth or is it just like a one or two sentence about what happened? Usually one or two sentences or little little kind of tidbits or things that will stand out in my brain later or that I can share with someone else. I think that's really important as I've transitioned to the academic side. So I was a clinician every day and treating patients and in the trenches for most of my career. And then I came to Seton Hall three years ago and I had to really flip the script where now My main responsibility was not to be the one to make the difference with the patient or not to be the one to tell my employees to make the difference, but my main responsibility was to instill in students early on how they can do that. So it's really having to take a step back. I think that's something I hopefully think I did well throughout my career is realizing the the win wouldn't be maybe directly mine. It would be the students on behalf of something maybe I taught them. So when a student now will say to me, oh my goodness, I had a patient stand for the first time, thank you for teaching me that technique. I'll never see that patient. I'll never know. Um, But I'll know in some way that something I did or imparted on them maybe helped them or gave them some um, ability or confidence to do that. And that's where I feel like I'd probably make the most difference now. So on the other hand about the quick decision making, Mm -hmm. oftentimes what people say is that when you make quick decisions, you make a lot of mistakes. How do you mitigate those mistakes? And what like, As I said, healthcare is a very high stakes field. What happens when you make a mistake? You know, I think in any field, we are human, right? So I think if we know what we are doing and we act in the best interest of the patient, things will happen. So I can use falls as a a maybe common one. I had a student recently say, have you ever had someone fall in your career? I said, yes. And I remember all of them and I can picture all of them, but they... We fall in life, right? I could be walking on the street and I can trip and I can slip on ice and I can fall and I can be completely healthy. So it's a mistake and maybe one we couldn't control. It's about controlling what you can and letting go of what you can't. We work with people who have needs. So if they are doing something, we are going to try and control for safety, try and integrate everything we've learned and really critically think in the moment. And then if mistakes happen, we have to give ourselves a little grace that, that we are human. Learn from the mistake, certainly. And then the only time it would be a scenario where I'd be concerned about myself or others is if people didn't put the steps in place that would anticipate the mistake. So again, sometimes accidents are going to happen, but it's really anticipating what could occur 
and trying to have that not be the case. And that, I think, helps you do react more quickly in the moment. If I've thought, okay, if I'm doing this skill and these five things are the things that could happen when I'm doing that, I'm going to try and control for the five things. If something completely out of the ordinary happens, maybe I couldn't control for that one, but I'll know I did my best to try and stop the mistakes before they start. So you talked about letting go, and I'm pretty sure there's some listeners out there who can be a little bit of control freak sometimes. Mm. How do you get better at letting go of things that you can't control? That's a good one. People who know me personally would say she doesn't let go (laughs) because I, um, you know, I have high expectations of myself and I have high expectations of the people I work with and my students. I want everyone to be the best and bring the best out in themselves. So I think that's important. And and if I look at people who I've learned from or things I've taught to people, I don't think anyone would talk about me and say, oh, Lauren was perfect and she was a perfect therapist or a perfect boss or a perfect professor. But I always try and think about really being comfortable with the fact that I'm always open to feedback, even my own personal feedback. But I love getting feedback. I think that's so important for students. And again, people who are growing leaders in our field is get that feedback from other people. Ask for that feedback. Elicit what you would want to know about a situation because then you can you can think about you know what you're doing and and again it's okay to to have a moment about it but you do need to turn the page you need to kind of get over it and move on to the next thing and just learn from it talking about things that like letting go I, I think something that I think I personally find it hard to let go is like letting go of tasks like delegating them like mm-hmm. do you have that difficulty how do you like let go of things and hope that they're like to your quality, like your standard. That is such a good thought. So um, my favorite book I read in grad school, one of the first books I read actually, um, was by Chris Lowney. And it's about about leadership. And it's about taking uh, life lessons from the Jesuits and and applying them in in our life, uh, you know, years, years later, centuries later. And an early quote in the book says, we're all leaders and we're leading all the time. And I loved that quote, and I use it so often when I speak. Because in the end, the idea is um, we start leading very early on, and we we are leaders innately. It's not that we have a position that makes us a leader. It's not because I was a manager that I got to be a leader. It's not because I had a really high job title. I was a leader that then grew into a position that ended up being a leadership position. But I think I was a leader for a long time. And I think where that came through is I was always comfortable delegating, but holding standards for the quality of the work. So if you don't delegate, it will pile up on you. None of us can do it all. And if you don't delegate, it also doesn't imply um, positive things for your followers. So if you don't say, I trust you to be able to do something, then how are we going to elevate those other leaders? How are we going to be all leaders leading all the time? If I don't say, I believe that you can do this, I'm here to help, I'm here for questions, but I believe you have the skills the strengths, whatever I've identified in you to do it, if I don't impart that trust on you, then I'm not doing a good job as a leader because I'm not empowering you to follow and to grow into a leader yourself. So I think that's really important. I think delegation is important. And it's not, oh, I'm dumping this task on you or I can't get this done today. It's I'm being really thoughtful about why someone should do something, why it would benefit them, and why it would benefit whatever goal we're looking for. The quote that you love is, Everyone leads all the time. Mm-hmm. How do you like become more aware of how you lead if you don't have any very obvious 
leadership roles like manager or director or things like that? I think that's the most important thing. When I think about, again, I look back, when I entered my graduate school degree for leadership was about when I was leaving a leadership position. And people said, why are you going to school for a leadership degree when you're dropping out of being a manager in a really high position? And I'm going to a really low faculty position. I don't have a leadership position on the faculty. I'm new. I'm one of the newest. My job title is one of the newest. So it was really interesting to have to explain that to people, that differentiation is, you know, we at Seton Hall, the mission of Seton Hall, we talk about servant leaders and how we serve others. That part is, again, not just in a job. I, the second I decided to be a PT, realized I wanted a job of service and what I did to grow into that role is I I was always thinking about how would I serve others more than myself. And when I started working and I had, again, no job title, I think I just naturally said, what can I do more to contribute to this entire process of making patients better? And some of it's very easy. I can work with that patient and make it better. Some of it's maybe not what I envisioned. It's, you know what, if we make patients better sooner and they get to go home sooner, That helps the company. That helps the organization that we have really good outcomes of getting patients successfully home. So I had to look at things in a different way and say, that's not what I pictured in healthcare. Maybe I wasn't thinking I was going to track how many days patients stayed in the hospital. And I later learned that was really important. That was an outcome that mattered to the hospital. And then I said, hey, we should start tracking outcomes. Then I used to take students really early. I said, can I teach another student? And I, about a year out, took a physical therapy student and helped train them to be a PT. And I said, wow, I shouldn't know anything right now. I'm a one-year graduate, but I gave back to them and I served them by helping them watch what I did and giving them feedback. So I always did those things. So it's the way you can lead is there is no definition of it. There is no, I got that title and now, hey, I have to start leading today. If tomorrow I got promoted to be the, (laughs) the top of the department tomorrow, I wouldn't suddenly be like, wow, I need to start leading now, now that I have this position. I would be showing and learning and working with each, with everyone I'm with to determine how to do the best things for, again, currently our students before it was my patients and my staff. But those skills need to be part of your everyday life. That could be in your profession. That could be in your personal life, in your community, volunteering, serving your friends when they need help, whatever it is. I think those life skills can transcend any profession. And that's what I think it's just really important to not feel attached to when I get there, I'll start leading. But what do I do well day to day? What energizes me that makes a difference in people? And that's a leadership skill in and of itself. So Dr. Snowden, thank you again for coming on to our show. Unfortunately, we are running off on time. I do have one slash two last questions for you. Sure. And that is, what thought leaders do you follow in the news or on social media? And what books, podcasts, and other media do you, do you suggest to leaders like yourself? Oh, I have I have uh, three currently that are my go-to. <laughs> my number one, both, and, and media and podcasts and books are sort of all the same. The best book I've read maybe in my life and recently is called Think Again by Adam Grant. He's an organizational psychologist, and he really talks about being that flexible thinker. He has been on many podcasts. He has a website that you can take a quiz on about how you think. Um, and it's a really quick 10-question thing, and it really drew me to him. He has an Instagram account that every day I feel like I read his quote and I say, yes, that's right. So I think he's a great resource and someone I've really learned a lot from, again, who's outside my field. The other book I read recently that I loved and I've been recommending to people is called The War for Kindness by Jamil Zaki. And that is a book about empathy and about how we can train empathy 
and how we can use it in our day-to-day lives, which is amazing. And then recently was reading another book, Afflicted, and I'm I'm blanking on the author. Could be Nicole Piamonte. Uh, recently have been um, listened to a speaker and an author named Nicole Piamonte who talks about humanities and how we need to bring humanities into healthcare. And it's funny, if you look at the three people who I've just named, none are physical therapists. So um, I think that really is what has stood out to me in that I want to draw from people of all different fields to help apply what they know into mine. So I think all of those are really valuable. I can't lie. I've heard of most of them through listening to Armchair Expert with Dak Shepard, my favorite podcast. I think he's hilarious. So he has had some of these guests on who are different, you know, different people who are kind of changing big picture at, at, at a personal level. And so that's really what I've, I think, learned the most about, you know, in the, those realms. So thank you so much once again for coming on to our show. Unfortunately, that's all the time that we have today. And to our listeners, we'll see you next week. On behalf of everyone at the Vasita Leadership Institute, I'd like to thank the podcast team, 89.5 FM WSOU, for allowing us to use their facilities, and you for listening. Follow us online at www.shu.edu backslash leadership, on Instagram at Vasita Leaders, and on Twitter at SHU Leadership. At Seton Hall, we make leaders better.